Hello, and welcome to the A Conversation with Speaker Series podcast from the Biederman Entertainment and Media Law Institute at Southwestern Law School. I'm your host, Orly Ravide, director of the Biederman Institute. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations with influential members of the entertainment, sports, and media law industries. Top-notch lawyers and other experts share their own journeys and provide insights into hot-button topics. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to not miss out on new episodes. In today's episode, we hear from musicologist and president of Judith Fennell Music Services, Judith Fennell. Her experience and knowledge of the niche field that is forensic musicology makes this conversation unique. After founding her company 25 years ago, Ms. Fennell has since served as consultant and expert witness involving music copyright infringement, advised an artist's career in project development, and counseled entertainment professionals on a wide variety of music industry matters. Judith will present the basics of musicology and discuss specific cases you're sure to recognize. She'll also answer questions addressing music licensing, copyright infringement, and sharing content in the age of social media, sampling, and apps. Feel free to use the link in the description to follow along with the accompanying PowerPoint presentation. Without further ado, a conversation with Judith Fennell. Thank you, Judith, for coming. Thank you for inviting me, Professor Ravid, and nice to meet all of you, even if it's virtual. And I hope to take you through a little bit of a musical uh, mystery tour, you might call it, um, for the next hour or so, and I look forward to your questions. I just wanted to explain what a musicologist does because I'm often asked that. So a musicologist is somebody normally uh, who has academic training in music, um, you, some kind of music, whether it's music performance or music composition or conducting music or all of the above, and has uh, probably a pretty intense background in music theory, meaning the understanding how, of how music is constructed um, and can be analyzed and what the various tones and rhythms and all are in a piece of music. So a musicologist, in essence, is someone who studies music, much as, say, an art historian would study art but may have come to the field through uh, an interest in art or being an artist her or himself. And the similar is true in musicology. You can be a completely active, performing, successful musician and not be a musicologist because you may not have a background or interest in music theory and musical construction. Or you could be a musicologist and not be a performer, a singer, a violinist, a conductor. Um, but I'd say the majority of people who are in my part of the field, which is, is a, tiny major, a tiny number, who actually apply musicology to our legal system um, are very few, but I would say most of us arrived here because there was some kind of passion for music and a music study and understanding, and certainly that was my case. I started really life very young as a pianist, and little by little I wanted to understand what made music tick more than just playing music on a, on a page and making it come to life. I actually, actually wanted to understand what was behind the creation of those sounds and uh, the me musical messages that were conveyed. And so musicology became the field that I studied. 
you should know that there's actually no course that I'm aware of, no degree in the country in forensic musicology. And there certainly wasn't one when I was uh, getting my education um, because it really combines music and law and those disciplines have stayed apart except when they need to come together to protect the rights of a creator. So the world in which we'll be talking about today and in which a forensic musicologist inhabits is a combination of music, technology, and law. In other words, first you need the music. So you have a piece of music that was written, be it a classical work by Igor Stravinsky or a popular song by Lady Gaga or anything else. But that music is enhanced at times by the technology that enables it to be broadcast or recorded or um, uh, in any way, or even performed um, and composed. And that intersection ends up in front of, in uh, concert in a way with the law because musical artists who create music and perform it have rights in terms of their intellectual property. And that's where a musicologist comes in. I often am seen as someone who dissects a piece of music to understand the music and to compare it to another piece of music which may or may not be similar and there are sometimes legal disputes about that, the similarities, and that's where it comes in. But remember that technology has a lot to do with fueling that engine because it can be a game changer. By that, I mean that really since, since uh, the 15th century, if not before, technology has been enabling the uh, production and multiplication of music reaching people. When you think of the pre printing press, which of course was developed more, I think, to distribute Bibles, <laughs> um, it also could distribute sheets of music because first music was written down. It was not recorded because there was no recording that existed yet. It was sometimes performed live after it was written down so the musicians could read the notes that they were to play. But the idea of duplicating what was written down and being able to have more than one copy, as you would think would be true in, in other areas such as books, meant all of a sudden that there was the right to copy a piece of music, literally. And that sort of started the ball rolling and it hasn't stopped today. And if you jump ahead um, about 400 years into the 1800s, we have audio recording. That was a big game changer. It meant that a live performance could be recorded and redistributed later, for example, shown in other places where, there hadn't, where the audience hadn't attended. And along came radio less than 100 years later. And that was a huge game changer. There was tremendous fear that live music as we knew it in concert halls would stop being done because radio was free you could in a way curate your own choices in terms of the style of music you wanted to listen to. Um, so you could listen to it at that time, a certain kind of station with your particular music that you liked, whether it was religious music, popular music, etc. So there was the fear that radio and its ability to distribute music widely to people who weren't buying concert tickets could kill the music industry as we knew it then. Along came sound within the same decade, 
sound and film. And again, of course, there had been the musicians playing in, in silent film music and the movie theaters before that, but the sound and film expanded the field of music also because all of a sudden there was scoring for some of the intangible emotions that artists were portraying on the, in their acting on the screen. And there was music that sometimes conveyed the emotions or affected the audience in terms of stirring up fear or anticipation or, or other kinds of emotions without any words from the script, for example. So it had great power in the use of film. And along that same decade, along came television, which enabled even a bigger distribution because now it wasn't just listening to a radio or a recording, but actually seeing a performer perform the music. All of these were seen as threats to the uh, monopolization of music that up until then had been held really in the hands of music publishers. They were the, um, if you will, the holders of the rights of a musical work. And of course, the, rec the record industry was about to emerge. And when it did, again, those rights had to be split in certain ways. So jumping ahead into uh, the 1980s, for example, records went from what we would call analog records to digital records. And I remember I lived in New York at the time and going into Tower Records, a block from Lincoln Center, and overnight, literally, it went from uh, cases and cases of LP, you know, record albums, and it was the biggest record store in New York City, to no record albums, no audio tapes, just CDs. The overnight, they must have stayed up the whole night restocking. And that was the beginning of the modern age. And the real reason that that was an issue was because that meant that musicians actually had access to, in essence, the master recording. So that a musician could take um, something off of an earlier recording, say uh, Frank Sinatra, Duke Ellington recording, and place it into a modern day recording. Maybe they just wanted a sax line. Maybe they wanted a vocal line. Maybe they wanted James Brown's scream. And even at first, there was no way to get permission to do that, so they just did it. Well, the law caught up with them eventually, but when you think of it, this was the early form of allowing the general public to have access to that sort of treasure chest that was protected by the monopolies of the basically record companies and music uh, publishers in a way. This was sort of unleashing uh, what they were trying to control, but also enhancing the ability for mu musical artists and composers to be heard all over the world and seen all over the world for the first time. And uh, as the internet exploded into the field and electronic distribution became possible, again, it broke down those walls because a musician no longer had to wait and hope that a record company would give him or her a deal, that they would find somebody at a publisher who was willing to take on uh, the mantle of representing them and promoting their music. They could actually go on, on various kinds of social networking and other sites and take their band sort of public 
without the need to actually have professional uh, middleman, if you will. And this also enabled musicians and music lovers to share their music, their music uh, collection with others without the benefit of buying it from a third party such as a record store. And this led to widespread uh, lawsuits on the part of the music industry, uh, the RIAA, meaning the Recording Industry Association and all, were literally suing you know 12 year olds who were sharing their files. It actually uh, threatened the internet viability of many universities because what students were doing was sharing uh doing file sharing with the uh internet they had access in their dorms um of all kinds some of them illicit and all but it was sort of like it was it had escaped the control of the corporate uh culture in a way that really you could never kind of put back in that box so today you have TikTok and many other social media possibilities where people can post you know, their viewpoints, but also the music that they like to hear for the public to hear with or without permission of the creators of the music. And that's the issue. And that's why um, there's, uh, we're really in a tremendously disruptive time. And add to that mix, which we'll talk about later, the fact that we have now created music that can be so well learned and observed by uh, artificial intelligence that it's being created without the, not necessarily with the involvement of a human creator at all. So that we'll get to that a little bit later. So this is the ecosystem in a way in which music works. This is basically how music, um, makes money and and divides up the rights because in the end the music industry is there to collect money from the creators i mean from the listeners from the uh concert attendees and others and the users of it in film television advertising and all and pay parts of that use back to the original creators and their publishers and recording companies so if you see on the left in the white boxes, you'll see sort of all the rights that are controlled by music publishers. And that's the C in the circle that you see on a piece of music or similar to what you see at the beginning of a book, meaning it's a copyright protected item. On the, on the right, you in blue boxes, you see what's protected by what you call the P in the circle, meaning the recording uh, copyright, which is a very late to the game recordings were not protected uh, very uh, until pretty recently in music industry history. But again, that's where you have the record, re control over the recording. So say you have a popular um, song that would be seen as in the public domain, like a Christmas Carol. But what you have is the Mariah Carey version of that Christmas Carol. And there are rights in just that particular recorded version which is the P in the circle. So if, if you decide to have a commercial around Christmas time for some product and you want to you know, pipe in as background the Mariah Carey version, well, you should, you should have contacted the recording company for that. Similar if you see a movie and in the background is playing some popular song to give the movie its, its um, 
con context and, and even its time, it is evoking a particular time in history, again, that should have been synchron, they, that should have uh, obtained synchronization rights. Synchronization means the syncing, basically, of video or visual to music. So this is a very complex basket of similar of uh, features in the financial uh, underpinnings of the music business. It's unlike most other art forms. All art forms share copyright protection, but the way in which it's split up because of the way music is distributed, performed, and heard uh, means that there are all these little boxes and these entities that have to be fulfilled. And also it's international, meaning, um, you know, it, wherever somebody has recorded a song, and it could be in some far reaches of the world, it doesn't mean that an artist here could not have heard it or been exposed to it, given the internet and other forms of social contact. The reason why that's important, as any of the lawyers or, or soon-to-be lawyers in the audience know, is there's an access issue that needs to be proven if copyright infringement is uh, claimed, one has to prove that the uh, potential defendant has had the ability and opportunity to have heard and been exposed to the music that supposedly has been copied. So we'll move on from this. So before we go into some of the music cases that I've testified in and that um, you might want to hear about, this is really what a musicologist has to do in forensic musicology, meaning the typical request I will receive is from an artist or an attorney or a music publisher or a record company where there has been a belief that one piece of music has imitated or copied or even lifted from the recording of another. And in order to determine that, it's a technical analysis that requires careful study of the music, often transcription, meaning writing down the tones, rhythms, and other elements, harmonies of the music, sometimes the lyrics, and then dissecting it so that we can compare song A to song B. And are they similar in what I consider content, meaning the, the real, um, granular part of music, or are they simply similar in style and that they share generic characteristics? And that's really the job of the musicologist to evaluate as well as first dissecting the music to understand how it's formed. And we'll go through that a little bit today. Um, we're coming up to the present time. There was a case involving the Marvin Gaye estate, um, who uh, Marvin Gaye, um, had a very famous successful song written uh, in the 1980s um, called, I'm sorry, the 1970s called um, Got to Give It Up. And it was a hot song. Most of Marvin Gaye's songs are very successful. And he did a lot of the singing and a lot of the, even some of the other uh, instruments that you'll hear in the background of his recording. And a song came out very more recently um, produced by Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke was the singer called Blurred Lines. And as soon as that song came out, there was belief in the industry as well as some of the representatives that Marvin Gaye's song had been copied. 
And there were uh, lot, there was lots of chatter among all areas. I mean, it was very, very uh, passionate kind of discussion on both sides. Had he, co had he been copied? Had he just been re referenced as respect, you know, as an homage? Or did, did the, his song actually get copied? And adding to that mix was were some of the, uh, the creators who, for example, Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke went on shows like the Oprah show and all and did make statements like the song that in question was actually their favorite Marvin Gaye song. And another one, uh, Robin Thicke was described as the white Marvin Gaye. So you can only imagine. Um, and in fact, this took place at the trial. It turned out that the record company that represented Marvin Gaye's song also was an umbrella company that represented a lot of other record companies. So Marvin Gaye's song originally was in the Motown uh, catalog, but that had been taken over by a big record company more recently. And that record company also was involved with the Blurred Lines song. So it turned out that one of the employees, one of the executives at the record company had thought they were such a good mix that they should come out with a promotion that put the two songs together to build a big audience for the most more recent Blurred Lines song. And so there were internal emails that were forced to come out in the trial that actually the record company itself saw the resemblance. Um, and that thus start, started the uh, you know, legal balls rolling, so to speak. So one of the challenges that occurred early in the case, and I was hired about a year and a half before the trial to do a basic musical analysis and comparison. And we were given the recordings that the attorneys felt were the most significant um, versions of those recordings to compare. And we did that. And then as the case progressed toward the court, federal court, the uh, opposing side um, actually put up a very big roadblock in which they were able to bar the use of the recording in the trial and stating that all we could use to show our musical work was a lead sheet, which was the handwritten version of the work that was originally submitted for copyright protection at the US Copyright Office. Because when Marvin Gaye's song was written, it was one year before the change in the copyright law. One year later, he could have submitted his recording as the representative, what's called the fixation of the copyright uh, uh, deposit copy. But he was one year early and he had to submit a sheet of paper representing at least some of the sounds on the recording. And the opposing side, which now had the biggest selling record of its year, I believe it was 2015 or so, um, and had sold something at that point at $16 million worth of music and perhaps merchandise. I'm not sure how that broke down. They were able to bar the jury and judge from hearing the full Marvin Gaye uh, song. So that was a big challenge also for me as a musicologist because I've been in many trials and no recording had ever been eliminated so that I was supposed to help the jury who was filled with uh, lay people who had no musical backgrounds and I was supposed to hold up a piece of paper and say this is like this other work because the other recording was allowed to be played fully so that was a huge challenge and a barrier so let's but in the end I'll just tell you that the judge relented after many uh, documents flying back and forth for a long time 
and allowed us to create our own very minimalistic recording of Marvin Gaye's music, as long as those particular elements were also represented on that lead sheet. So I'll give you, we're gonna go now backwards in time a little bit so you see what I'm talking about. So this is very, very light because this is actually a copy of the original lead sheet that's filed with the US Copyright Office. And what this is, is that Marvin Gaye went into the studio with other musicians and recorded his song, Got to Give It Up. And somebody else who worked for his publisher and wanted to secure the copyright wrote this down. But not everything was written down. He had cowbells, for example. There's not a cowbell on this piece of music. Um, there were backup singers. They show up later. This is a multi-page piece of music, but they show up a little later. But there were keyboards, keyboards being played with specific chords. All that you see on this piece of music, for those of you who might read music, are chord symbols like the A7 at the top. And uh, going forward, you see other chords. Those are names of chords, but that's not telling the keyboard player exactly how, what notes in those chords to play in what order or even what rhythm. There were other elements that were not showing here, but that were prominent to the recording and could be heard in similar fashion in the Blurred Lines song that we were not permitted to show. So in the end, we were restricted by the lyrics that you might see here by the, there was a baseline at issue and the first eight bars of this lead sheet show a baseline. And that's quite rare in a lead sheet. You rarely see a bass line written out. We don't see things like drums or drum kit or anything else, but we did have a bass line. And that was an article of great contention on both sides, uh, since there's a similarity that we found in the bass lines. But this, in other words, is where the case started a few weeks before the trial. This was supposedly all the jury would be exposed to of the Marvin Gaye song. But little by little, we were allowed to create our own recordings as long as we guaranteed to the judge that we had stripped away any element of Marvin Gaye's original recording that wasn't represented on this piece of music. So what you're about to hear is, is uh, a little bit of each song so you know really why there was an issue between these parties. First, uh, got to give it up. <laughs> to the analysis in a minute, but you may be able to tell there's definitely um, 
a similarity between the two, but the job of the musicologist is to go below, below the superficial. You know, is it just a similarity of, as has been said in m much of the literatures before and after the trial, it's just the vibe. Uh, that's an, uh, another word for, you know, it's the style, it's the feel, it's the mood of the song, or is there more? Well, you know, my job was to listen to them and determine if there were significant concrete similarities between them. And I found that there were, but they weren't in an obvious way. In my typical song where I'm asked to compare one song to another because of a suspicion of similarity, if there are similarities, they're often in parallel places. You'll say, oh, the, the first phrase of the chorus is very similar to that first phrase of the chorus in the other one, or the bass line is the same in the intro in both songs or similar. So they tend to be a kind of um, apples to apples comparison. That wasn't the case here. I had to study it very, very carefully. And I thought, I hear similarities, but they're not in a linear fashion. They're not necessarily all in the same place. And it sounded more or less like a kind of crazy quilt of individual similar features. Um, eventually, I realized that really the only way I could describe the similar features, which were in fact there, was to call it a constellation of similarities. And uh, what I meant by that and tried uh, to explain it in court was that there were a combination of similarities that coexisted in each song and those similarities influenced the other similar features. So you might have a bass line and you might have a keyboard and they worked in concert with each other because they, for one reason, they had to harmonize or they would sound bad together, all right? Just like if you're singing happy birthday and you got a soprano and a bass and a tenor all singing it, they have to sing in the same key and they have to sing most of the same harmonies or they're going to clash and it won't be attractive. And the same is true here. So when I called it a constellation, what I meant is that these similar features definitely are there but they have a big influence on one another in each song. So their, their constellations were in a way designed similarly, even if a lot of their features were located in different places with the, with the, in each songs, what you might call real estate. So the first similarity that you notice from the moment you hear it, or at least I did, was there were two things going on at once besides the voice, and that was bass, and keyboard and they were going on through all out both the songs i considered them the heartbeat of the song they were very similar but they weren't identical but remember we had some challenges because the keyboard didn't show the exact chords that were being played it did show the the names of the chords but didn't say if you could play if you were playing an e chord was the e on the bottom and the B on the very top and the G sharp or G minor or G natural in the middle, for example, or were they inverted? So you did, it didn't tell you any of that. It also didn't tell you what beats to play them on because music's divided into beats or rhythms. For music to be similar, in my opinion, when we're talking about the melodic and rhythmic parts, they have to have pitches in common and rhythms in common. And what I found was that the keyboards did in both songs play in the same rhythm. It was an offbeat. 
meaning there are four beats in every measure and beats one and three are considered strong beats and beats two and four are considered off beats or weak beats. They both played on the weak beats and they played the same chords when they were doing that and that was suspicious. On top of it, the basses weren't identical, but they had a lot of similar distinctive features. And when they played together, that was sort of the, bit, the foundation of all the rest of the songs because it was always going. It was the heartbeat or the foundation of the vo vocal parts that were played above them. And it was kind of the engine that drove the song. So I was allowed to say amplify this in chord. I, they brought in a piano, an electric, but uh, an electronic piano for me to help the jury understand because it's very hard for people who aren't trained in music to understand how to isolate something. Now we isolated it for them by playing only the keyboard and bass there without any vocal parts. But in an ordinary recording, you've got vocalists singing, you've got flutes playing, you've got you know, uh, cowbells going, you've got drums, you've got backup singers, maybe electronic sounds. Those could all be happening at exactly the same moment. And how, how can you dissect that and make it clear what is similar? Because in a copyright case, what is similar is what matters, not the fact that there are other distractions or dissimilarities. So my job was to help them focus and retain the information. So I was allowed to play like, the chords that were the same, they punctuated. So it was on beats one, two, three, four. And I would sort of give them a music lesson to the jury and help them understand what they just heard and what they should focus on. So that was sort of my first set of similarities I wanted them to understand. And then um, I'm not going through all the similarities that were found, but there were some that were very, very noticeable and dramatic in a way. So this is one of them. There's something in music that's been around really since maybe the Middle Ages called word painting. What word painting is a device and what it means in music is that a composer finds a way to illustrate through music the symbolism of some words. For example, a religious song being sung where the theme of the words is that he went up on high, the pitches may rise up to a higher pitch from a lower pitch, for example. Or if we say he went from darkness to sunshine, the key may change from a dark minor, minor scale, uh, which you use for funeral music and other types of more sad or scary music to a bright sounding, major scale. That's, that's a little more technical. What I'm saying is that the music somehow illustrates the meaning of the word. So this is not a new concept or original. It's not as common in popular, modern day popular music, however, to be using the music, the music as, in a way, a paintbrush for illustrating the meaning of the words. Uh, and in this case, I noticed that both songs did that. But what was really, annoying, uh, really am amazing when you sort of put it under a musical microscope was that they did it with the same words. Now that was a uh, red light kind of going off. Wow. And then I looked further and saw when they used those words, they used most of the same notes to illustrate those words in their word painting. So there were a series of three words that, three little groups of words. So 
in one song, it was move it up, turn it round, shake, ooh, shake it down. That was Marvin Gaye's. The other song took those, as you can see from the arrows, and changed the order, but did have shake round, get down, get up. What was interesting is when they had words like up, the melody went up, and it went up to the same pitch, etc. with down. And again, it, luckily it was in the lead sheet of Marvin Gaye's, or we couldn't have even included it in the trial. Um, but it was there, it was in writing, we could use that to illustrate this word painting. So it turns out that the word painting had another important function that was the same in both. And I called it a bookend because it was in a section that music is organized in different sections, the way books are organized in chapters. And each section um, often has different melodies and different lyrics like a chorus and a verse. So, you know, you might have uh, jingle bells and then dashing through the snow. Those are all different sections of the song. And every time you come back to the main, what you call the refrain, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the ways, that's that refrain or repeated section. So sometimes music that's a little more complex also has something that links the six sections to one another through changes in harmony. And we call that a bridge. So in the case of each song, this is common in popular songs. So in the case of each song here, they both had a section that was called a bridge and that's where they put the word painting. And the reason why that was particularly noticed was because, noticeable was because it was immediately before an unusual section I'm about to tell you about in one song and immediately after the same kind of section in the other song that was in both cases a deviation. So when I analyzed it, because that's really what a musicologist does, I studied, I, we transcribed every note of each of these word painting groups. We, we transposed them in the same key, which is considered acceptable musical analysis practice. We found that, for example, three out of four pitches and blurred lines were also in Got to Give It Up in this, in this setting. We also noticed they shared the lyric down and that's when the scale degree went down, what's called to the same note, the one. And also it happened, I don't, I don't know if this was meant to be symbolic, but each one happened on what was called the downbeat, which is the strong beat of the bar. And similarly, the, these little three note phrases were so parallel, but what really mattered is where they were located. Again, we're about to get to probably what was the, uh, the winning part of the similarities. So we had a, an unusual structural situation in each song. Now, when Marvin Gaye wrote his song, rap music was not a popular form of music yet. So it wasn't very common to have, say, a part of a song or an entire song in which the lyrics were mostly spoken with a music track kind of as background, for example, or even spoke or sung in more or less a monotone. That wasn't that common in the form of popular music that Marvin Gaye was more or less the king of. Um, but in his song, we noticed at one specific bar, which is where the blue arrow is on top, where it says Parlando section. It's a little hard to read, I'm sure, because it's small. But um, exactly there at bar 73, what happened was 
Marvin Gaye stopped singing his very melodious, high-ranging, wide-ranging melody, which he was known for. And he went into a monotone in which he just sang maybe two notes apart or one note for many, many repetitions. And that wasn't even his normal singing style. It was more like a chant. And it was a very big melodic de deviation from all the music that came up before it for 72 bars. And he kept going like that. Um, and then he ended it and went back to his regular singing at bar 88. In music where it's half spoken and half sung, the term for that, and it's used in other forms of music, including opera, is parlando, meaning partially spoken, partially sung. Um, in a similar way of describing it in German musical analysis, Sprechstimme, which also means partially spoken, partially sung. And in Marvin Gaye's song, that was noticeable. And remember that right before that, right before the Parlando section and got to give it up was the word painting that we've already talked about. And then right after it, Marvin Gaye, I believe it was 15 bars later, goes back to singing his ordinary way of singing that had preceded it. Well, this was noticeable for this reason. We looked at the uh, other song, Blurred Lines, and it turns out that it, smack in the middle of Blurred Lines, the singing of Robin Thicke, which is also very melodious and airy and uh, easy to listen to, really, um, the, it stops dead and in walks a, a, an artist, a rap artist named T.I., who does a whole spoken rap section and um, out of the blue kind of like, it's completely not related to the song before or that follows it. Okay, well, when we looked at it, we saw that it was exactly in the same location. It started in bar 73 and it ended uh, and continued back to the other song through the bridge in 83. And when we compared the recordings, those, we weren't allowed to show that in court, but it turned out that the location of them on the recordings was exactly in the same place. It was down to the same millisecond of beginning and ending, the parlando and the rap section. And I guess if you ever wanted to find a fingerprint at the scene of a crime, we had just found it, okay? This was really suspicious. Now, it's not suspicious because they used a rap section in blurred lines, because that's very, very common, as many of you know who listen to uh, modern works. But it was the location and the way it was sort of plopped in there. And at, when the rap section ended, it used it, the bookend to get it out of there and back to the main song for the bridge was the word painting. So that was really, really uh, whatever you would call it, a smoking gun or something like that, because it was just really noticeable. And as I say, it was, it was because it was so uh, definable in the recording. It was as if the writers of uh, Blurred Lines had used the other song as their template. You know, it was, gone, it was going beyond sort of, uh, you know, um, paying homage to Marvin Gaye. It was really using his song to create their song, and that's how it fell. Um, and that was part of what we testified to in court, but that was a really aha moment when we discovered that. So this is what I remember when we started, I said there was a constellation of similar features that interacted with each other in both songs. 
And these eight items were the constellation of similar features that the songs shared. And in the middle, items four and five were that heartbeat that we started with, the bass and the keyboards combined. They were kind of married and, and basically the, the engine that kept the song running forward. And they were very parallel. And here you see the word painting, you see the parlando. There are other similar phrases that I don't have time to get to today. But these were the items that they had in common when restricted to the lead sheet by Marvin Gaye and the recording of Pharrell Williams. Before the recording was eliminated by the Pharrell Williams side, we actually had 14 similar Similarities because there are other kinds of unusual similarities too, um, including some of the way the backup singers were singing and some of the words they were using and exactly the, the rhythmic positioning of those words. But those were eliminated because they weren't showing on this piece of paper. So this is what, but these similarities all showed on the lead sheet and these are what we were restricted to. Um, when I'm on panels with the winning lawyer, Richard Bush, who is very, very talented and, and won a very big victory here. He often says that, you know, he, he was able to win this with one hand tied behind his back. And what he means is not being able to play this recording. This was really a challenge. So moving on from there, the challenge for me as a musicologist is how do I enable a jury to retain this? For example, at the end of each day of trial, the judge would turn to the jury, thank them for their service and say, please do not go home and listen to these songs. Now, I don't know what they did after they left, but they were told not to expose themselves to the recordings. Um, and uh, so they were going to go into the jury room without any recordings. And most of them, it's very hard to retain music. It's very abstract. Uh, you know, unless you had a lot of training, you don't retain a tune other than a few tunes that you might sing often, but I mean, you're not going to retain the complexities of something like that. So my challenge was, I think people retain information visually more easily than by listening. And so my job is really as a teacher. And so I decided I was going to show on paper exactly where this constellation took place in the song Blurred Lines, the so-called uh, infringing song. So this, the idea of this is that we devised all 130 bars, every uh, vertical line you see here, it represents one bar of Robin Thicke's song. Uh, and each bar represents, you know, a unit of four beats, okay? And all of the horizontal colors represent one of those eight constellation features in color. So every time you see the keyboard that we talked about before, it's this, it's the middle, that middle um, horizontal line in kind of a beige color. This is two sets so that the upper set, uh, say from the title blurred lines down to the black horizontal space is, is the first half of blurred lines. And the second one half is from got to give it up uh, uh, down to the black uh, line on the bottom. So this this is in essence, I decided I had to create a roadmap for people to concretize the experience of listening to the music because it wasn't obvious. It wasn't like, oh, just play this little little phrase and they'll hear it right away. 
you had to hear this whole mixture of similarities that floated in and out of them. And that's what this represents. There were similar lyrics that you can see in the purple little boxes. They didn't have identical lyrics, but when they had the word painting, you can see um, where the parlando section is um, in each one, the parlando in one and the rap in the other. And if you see right before that, in you see the, the purple, those are those lyrics, the word painting, for example. So this is, this is how we are able to show them. On one song, it was uh, before and the other after the parlando and rap. And the black line along, a horizontal black line is when, when there was at least one similarity in a bar. I call that the composite of similarities. But if you look above the black lines, you see multiple similarities that occur in the same bar. And so that's why I called it a constellation because they float in and out. They weren't consistent but they were there and the only places they weren't there were about three bars where you'll see white space that breaks the horizontal black line those are the only bars that had no similar features of the eight we were permitted to show if we'd been permitted to show what was in the recording this would have been even more complex it would have had about 14 different colors and uh, showings but this is what we were permitted to show and that's, this is what I call the roadmap of the constellation. And that's really the job of a forensic musicologist is to take music that is so abstract and so impossible for your ordinary listener to retain and make it concrete enough that it can be understood and retained. So, you know, in the end, what it came down to, it was pretty impossible for this many similarities to have come into being just through either happenstance or coincidence. It looked very deliberate, especially when you drilled down and saw the timings of the parlando and the rap and the word painting. And as I say, out of 130 bars, basically, I guess it's just two, I said three before, but two bars had no, none of the similarities, but 128 had one or more. Most of them had multiple similarities. So it was a, in a form kind of a fingerprint or a smoking gun that we found in some of the similarities. Others were very commonplace and could be found in other music. But as those of you who have defended cases like this know, one of the defenses is to show prior art so that one proves that the similarities that exist in these two works actually were not original to either work and pre-existed within the music literature. The other side had a very, very well-resourced uh, defense team and their own musical experts. And after all the research and resources they devoted to it, they found one song with five of the similarities. They found no songs with eight and none with the 14 that included recordings. So they really weren't able to dismiss this as you know just so commonplace even though it's been talked about as that since, and a lot of this has been disagreed with in subsequent court findings, uh, in, in subsequent cases that refer back to this. But in my opinion, this is, this is why I believe the copying took place. This is for myself, the proof that I needed to understand uh, what the relationship was in between the songs and in a way my responsibility of communicating it. So we'll go on from here to other cases. 
um, often I'm asked, you know, what do I look at in music and what is most important? And this is my personal hierarchy of musical elements that I look at. Sometimes it doesn't apply if the music is, you know, different from the norm. But if there is melody, um, I do look at pitch first. To me, melody and pitch are king. Uh, most of the people in my team, uh, myself included, have perfect pitch, so maybe that's why I focus so much on But to me, pitch is king, but there's rhythm too. So pitch without rhythm is not a melody because rhythm means how long does the pitch last? If you're singing a C and then a D and then an E, how many beats is the C? How many beats is the D? Two melodies that have ser several similar pitches in common, but have completely different rhythms don't always sound the same. So while they don't have to be 100% identical, they have to have a combination of similar pitches and rhythms enough to sound more similar than different. And once you have more melodies occurring at once, say in a chorus or instruments and voice or band, you have harmony because harmony is the multiple uh, sounding of pitches at the same time, and that forms chords. So chords are next and important to look at, but never alone really carry a case, I believe. And lyrics are obviously important. They're copyright protected. And if you have a few isolated, similar, commonplace lyrics, I don't consider that important. But if you have either a series of lyrics, and if for some reason they're distinctive, and then you look at how the lyrics are set musically and if they're set to similar rhythms or similar harmonies or other musical elements that are expressing the lyrics that are similar, then you start to take it more seriously. So it's a matter of looking at what you have as a, music, a musicologist and then understanding, kind of ranking it in terms of its musical importance and impact on the musical work. Metric placement was a big deal in this trial because where we found identical or similar uh, melodic characteristics such as pitch and rhythm, as we did in the four note hooks of each song, for example, the other, the other uh, expert argued that they weren't placed in this bar in the same way. So in other words, they didn't both start on the same beat or end on the same beat. And so uh, that, that's definitely a characteristic, but I am in the 25 plus years I've been doing this, I've never had a case in which me metric placement was the reason for uh, similarity being claimed or a copyright infringement uh, being claimed. Um, proportion of sim significant elements was important. That means, you know, how much of the real estate of a song did, e did the similar elements occupy? Because they weren't 100% the same. Well, as you saw on my roadmap, you know, I'd say, you know, 128 out of 130 is a very high proportion of related elements. So that, that's a high proportion, but sometimes you only have one element. For example, in hip hop music, sometimes there's a repeated one or two bar phrase that plays on and on for four minutes while a rap is occurring over it, for example. And it's maybe got eight notes in it or 10 notes. And one might say, well, it's only got 10 notes. How original could that be? Of course, if it occupies, you know, three minutes, 59 seconds out of a four minute, 10 minute, uh, four minute, 10, 10 second song, I'd say that that's significant. So sometimes it's how much time of a song it takes up. Sometimes it's how distinctive it is. You have some unusual songs that kind of carry the song like, 
say the hook Poker Face in Lady Gaga's song, or there are plenty of famous hooks, but something, it could be just one little kernel, but it's so distinctive. Or the first chord of the Beatles, it's a hard day's night. You hear that chord, and if you've ever been exposed to the Beatles, you know what song you're about to hear. So sometimes one, one occurrence of one element is absolutely uh, emblematic of the identity of that song. And if that's what's copied, then, then there's a dispute. So I'm going to go through some other cases, some of which I was an expert on, some of which I'm, I'm just sharing with you as in this case. The reason why this case is kind of interesting, well, there are a few reasons. One is Tom Petty sues a lot of people. But the other reason is that Sam Smith had just been on the rise and had gotten, I believe, the, the Grammy that, the, that year. Whenever the Grammys occur, my office, the phones in my office ring a lot before and after and other kinds of awards because it makes that particular winner very vulnerable because they become a target, you know, if there is anything or if there was similarity that somebody feels has been copied, that's the time that they really feel cheated because they haven't ha had any kind of credit for their work, let alone money. So often a lot of disputes occur when a song rises up in the charts and it, I, know that in the, I have about seven people in my group of uh, associates who are musicologists. And one time we counted in, a, the, in the billboard chart, we had something like five of the top songs we were all studying because all of them had been multiply accused. So it is a time when things happen. But in this case, you know, there was some reason for it. So why don't you listen to Tom Petty and then Sam Smith, stay with me. So you might hear the resemblance. I mean, I don't know if you all want to raise your hands, but do you hear the resemblance? I'm going to play it again and see if the audience can tell why there might have been an issue. why Tom Petty, uh, you know, when he was watching the Grammys or whatever and heard that, I don't know. But I mean, you know, the song was already on the rise before it got a Grammy. But in other words, here was this new kid coming on the scene and mm, it sounded like my song is probably what Mr. Petty thought. So, um, and others might have thought, oh, but that's a common set of notes and it's just a reference, you know, and there's, there's it's all over the spectrum. Well, I wasn't involved in this song, but I have done an analysis for you to show you what would happen uh, if that phone call had been made, at least to my office. So this is really what we look at. So the top, the top, what's called a stave in music, the top line of music, we've analyzed. Well, I won't back down. That's called the hook of Tom Petty's because it's the main, the main musical uh, 
message and made musical phrase. The, the one phrase that is identified with the song so closely. So he wrote two phrases. The second one complements the first uh, lyrically also. And um, if you look at the arrows, you, and I'll explain them sh shortly, but you see an arrow over every single pitch. That's because every single pitch in Mr. Petty's song can also be found in a similar place in Mr. Smith's song. And then we transcribe it. So these are the actual rhythms. The little black notes are pitches. The little round parts are pitches for those of you who don't read music. Music is a symbolic language. And the lines, uh, vertical and horizontal, are showing their rhythms, how long each of that, those pitches last. And so what you have is two phrases in Tom Petty's song, and these are the key phrases, his hook and his follow-up. And you have all these notes. So you've got five notes in the first phrase and five notes in the second phrase. The numbers represent the position in the scale. So the three, for example, over the first note with the word well, that represents an E in the key of C, for example, and the G is a five, that's in the fifth uh, position in the scale of C over the word I. So when you compare music, you compare their scale degrees, that's really what the pitch is, and how long each one lasts before the next note comes in, and that's what the rhythms are showing. So if you look down below at Sam Smith, you'll see arrows after the first note. You'll see arrows again for five notes in a row three, five, six, five, three. And if you look above, three, five, six, five, three, very close. Then the second phrase, which is also a, a supplemental phrase. The first song in, uh, first phrase in, sorry, in Sam Smith, oh, I, oh, won't you stay with me? And the second one, cause you're all I need is uh, musically speaking, a, a supplement musically to the first phrase. And again, the notes being one, two, three, one, one that they have in common, there's one note that isn't. This is, would be considered a very high degree of similarity. It, I would de define it as substantial similarity. Um, I wasn't involved in the case, but I would say that the, the most reasonable defense would be to look through prior art. And would you find other music that has at least the same scale degrees in order that's very close to either of those? The answer is I am positively positive that the answer is yes. But I think this was settled because I guess it was in the interest of the various parties not to take it to trial. Uh, it would have been quite a trial. Um, but in any event, it was settled. Um, and I don't know for how much because that's rarely disclosed. But this is an example of the kind of case that reaches the courts fairly often, but most cases never do. I'd say uh, of the many, many calls we get from throughout the country and even abroad, you know, maybe 5% ever end up in a courtroom. Most of them are settled and many of them are not good enough to actually progress. Uh, we. I would say that at least 50% of the cases were asked to review and evaluate by attorneys and their clients, we say are weak cases because the materials might be similar but not original, or there are other reasons. So it's rare for a case to really make it to a federal trial, but when they do, there's a lot of news about it. In this case, you had melody that was the same or close within both pitch and rhythm, and then my hierarchy, those are the two top items. I still think of pitch as king. 
Out of the 10 pitches that were similar, most of the rhythms in Petty were also in Smith. The melodic structure and the variations were similar because each had those two phrases. The first phrase was sort of what you call the statement and the second one was complementary. There are music theory reasons that are a little too complex here, but to explain why it's complementary harmonically and in other ways. Um, a harmony, they didn't have identical chords, but two out of the same three chords they shared. And function, it was what you call the hook. In other words, the, the purpose of that particular phrase that was similar was the hook. And the hook is usually derived from the title of the lyrics of the song. So in this case, it, these were the lyrics of the title, but they were also the lyrics of what you call the hook. If you were to make a ringtone of a song, you would be using the hook of the song, which was a big issue in the ringtone tone controversy when I testified in Washington on that topic. You would be selecting sort of that key phrase that identifies the song. So let's move on. Um, these are the differences. The defense would be talking about the different lyrics between the song because they were different uh, uh, in Tom Petty's and the others on Sam Smith's song and that there was one out of three chords that were different. So the defense is always ar arguing differences or prior art or lack of originality and the, uh, you know, the assertions on the part of the complainant are the similarities and the access. So let's go on to a song, uh, something we've all heard about. This is still going through the courts. So Taurus was a, 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 a song um, and, a, and performed on stage as a warm-up act actually for Led Zeppelin. So there was not an access issue. And um, here are the two songs involved. This case was asserted many years after, uh, I think, the death of the main party uh, asserting the case, but his estate. Um, I think it, his uh, professional name was, I believe, Randy C California, but I'm not sure. But anyway, listen to these and you'll hear why there's a dispute. Stairway to Heaven. So the, this is a, an interesting case because you might remember that I said that part of the job of the musicologist is to really determine if the similarity is one of genre or vibe or the other words that are used to talk about musical style, or if the really concrete elements that construct a piece of music are the same. So if you listen to the two of these, there are certain similarities. There are similarities in the melodies and the harmonies and the bass. 
And that's what the case was about. This is just the introduction of both songs. I just want, since this is a famous case that's going, still going through the courts, I'm going to have Jeff play it for you again, please. this so I was not testifying in this trial but if if I were my job and certainly the ones who did testify would have to unpack this what's similar what's dissimilar about them well they both use one particular what you would call a musical building block and what's that it's called an arpeggio an arpeggio is instead of playing all the notes like you're strumming a guitar at once where you strum the guitar in all three notes of your chord, be it an F chord, a C chord or something, are played at one time. And that's called normally called a chord. Or on the piano, you'd be playing two or three notes at once in a chord, say in the left hand, while maybe you're singing the, the vocal part or playing the vocal part in the right hand of a song. So it's those multiple notes that are playing at once that are called a chord. But a chord is composed of, say, three or four notes. A C chord, for example, has the notes C and E and G. Well, if you play them individually and you can pluck them that way on a guitar, or you could play them that way on a piano or other instruments like harps and all, if you play them in individually, but they spell out the notes of a chord, that's called an arpeggio. Meaning instead of it being played all at once, you hear one note and then the next note and the next note in succession of one another an arpeggio. So it's a kind of distinctive sound, but it turns out that, you know, musicians have been writing arpeggios since Bach and Mozart were around. So it's not original with either song, and I'm sure that's part of what the defendants asserted. And they're not identical. If you actually start to unpack it and look at it on a note-for-note -note basis, you'll see that the notes aren't in the same order in their arpeggios. They also have other similarities, which are called like a descending line, going from a higher note to a lower note, and other kinds of musical similarities that are parallel between them. Um, but this case isn't done yet, but at least in its initial trial, for example, the judge cited the Blurred Lines case and forced the, uh, the complainants to be restricted to a lead sheet. And that was not easy because the, you, not everything's going to be in a lead sheet. There's a lot missing from a lead sheet that's actually not at all what always drives the song. Because the writers of music, especially modern popular songs, do not often read music. That's not how they come up with their music. It's either from listening or they would like to say, and I hope they're right most of the time, from their own minds and their own creative imagination. 
but it's not because they're looking at a piece of paper and then imitating it that way. That's pretty rare, just due to the present day musical education. So when you eliminate a recording, you've sometimes eliminated the actual source for the similarity. So that's a big issue. But the other issue was that there was so much prior art that could be legitimately shown on the part of the Led Zeppelin side because the individual similarities were found in the literature to prove that no of, none of those similar features were original with either song. So I don't know where it will end up in the end, um, but this looks like it's going the way of saying when you have a collection of building blocks that are used in the literature prior to the existence of the work of art, you are less and less likely to be able to assert and win that copyright infringement occurred. Um, going on from there, we're going to talk now, we're going to go back to that original um, idea of the blend of technology, music, and law. And here we go. One of the big developments that we talked about in my original chart early on was the, the digital revolution. In the 1980s, I'm sure well before that in its development, but in the 1980s, music became digitized and available to the public in CDs and even without CDs online and streaming grew out of that too. But you, that wouldn't have happened if music hadn't been converted to a digital world. But with that came the rise of music such as hip hop and all that was completely based on utilizing third-party materials from pre-existing recordings and putting them together in various forms on a new recording and producing that as if it, it were in fact a new work of art. And before the music industry took a lot of time to catch up with that and so did the course. So there was a significant amount of time of many years where especially street artists in, in the Bronx and all were um, creating these works of art through the use of digital technology because it's very, very easy once music's digitized to utilize it without the benefit of a recording studio or a sound engineer actually with just a little bit of knowledge and some understanding of software and all. And one can create a new record using say the sax line from one record and the drum line from another record and the melody or even more from another. And you can manipulate it if you want and sort of once you put it into your own songs environment, or you can leave it so it's recognizable. And I remember many different panels that I went to in those days in New York, um, hosted by people like ASCAP and BMI and the record industry, and they were terrified because really the way in which music was being created was a producer would say, okay, so this is how I made my record. You know, they'd be on the panel and they'd say, I walk into the studio with a crate of 78s or, you know, LPs, and I take a needle drop from this one and a needle drop from that one, and I and it really made it a hit, you know, when they heard James Brown scream or this or that. And, you know, it, so that part of the art form was to have this recognizable material, but nobody had paid for it. Nobody had asked it for, uh, permission to use it. And it took a few years for this to explode and, and develop an entire new part of that ecosystem of uh, rights, meaning eventually there developed an entire sub-business in the music industry of licensing samples. So say you listen to something and you say, 
Oh, I think that I've heard that, you know, horn part on uh, Tijuana brass. I'm really pretty sure that, that that's the horn part. Well, it turns out that, yes, you, you did hear it there on this new hip hop song, but the maker of the hip hop song or his or her record company licensed it from the maker of the original and they paid a price for using that. But it took many years to create that infrastructure and a payment system and an enforcement system. And until that happened, it was really a wild west. So I'm gonna show you a little bit about how I dissect music when we're asked, we think our music's been sampled. I will tell you that only a very small portion of music's actually legitimately paid for and given permission to be used. Most is not. And it's sort of after the fact that they get caught because what happens is a song that was just somebody's creation turns into a mega hit and it's heard all over the world. And whoever wrote that original part that they hear of their own in the other song comes, you know, comes to the surface and uh, you know, um, it becomes a, a reckoning among these forces because the song's very big. And it happened with, I mean, I'm sure you all heard about many cases like this where there were multiple samples in the piece of music. But the job of someone like me is to analyze it and determine if it actually happened, number one, and number two, to analyze the music in terms of how much of the music is impacted by this utilized piece. So I'm going to show you really in a way the dissection process of determining a sample. And also I testified in many cases involving this, including for the Beastie Boys and other early, early adopters of this particular technology and art form. And um, that's where a lot of the cases began. So we're going to walk through this a bit. So here's a song, um, there was a, an artist, uh, kind of a niche artist in New York uh, in his day named Jimmy Castor. And Jimmy Castor was not worldwide famous or anything else. And this is his album co cover. You can see it's an LP. And, um, but he had a song that he became his sort of signpost. And he'd come out on stage and the song would be playing. And the, song, the big words in the song, the hook in the song were, Yo, Leroy. And he was known as Leroy. You know, this was his, um, you know, whatever you would call it. He, he was still named by his Jimmy Castor. He wasn't Dr. Leroy or anything else that developed later. But this song was not well known at all in the main part of the industry. And remember that rec both radio and other parts of the music industry were completely segregated for many, many decades into the 20th century. So an artist like this was not necessarily exposed to sort of white NYU uh, trained um, artists like the Beastie Boys, but here's what happened. Um, and I got called by the owners first of the Jimmy Castor side and then later, that didn't develop into anything. And then many years later, this is what happened. So this is Jimmy Castor. Yo, Leroy, what you doing? Okay, and then fast forward to the Beastie Boys who were just getting a hold on on a big part of the music industry. And their song was called Hold It Now, Hit It Now. Hold it now. Okay, now I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hands because I you know you must notice that that's similar, right? That wasn't paid for, no permission was sought, and this came out on a big record label. Okay. 
And if you go through that song, by the way, there are sax lines and others that were also sampled. It wasn't just a one-time thing. So a lawsuit did ensue. And actually, I testified later on the side of the Beastie Boys. And it was described as a kind of um, collage, that this was an art form that was, in, in a sense, a collage of other third-party materials, usually very short, that were kind of woven in together in, in a mosaic, if you will. And that the, but the final outcome was a different piece of art, even though it was built on the foundation of pre-existing recordings. Well, um, that went on for a while and that was negotiated, but eventually there was a very big famous case in which a hip hop artist named Biz Markey had a song called I Need a Haircut. And he really liked this little phrase that went like this from a kind of hokey song by Gilbert O'Sullivan. And his phrase was, alone again, naturally. And um, well, Mr. Markey really liked that. So he asked permission of the Gilbert O'Sullivan estate since Mr. O'Sullivan was no longer living and they said no. And he did it anyway. And it went out on Atlantic Records. He did not inform Atlantic Records that there was a sample in there. And the case blew up, ended up in federal court. Judge Duffy in the Southern District of New York at the very, I still remember his uh, decision at the very top of it, it said, thou shalt not steal. And he referred it, you know, to prosecutors as if it were any other form of theft. And I'd say like 20 seconds later, the music industry created a licensing mechanism since this was apparently what they're going to have to constantly fa be facing and be facing without knowledge because often they weren't told that there was uh, definitely a smoking gun hidden in that song that was making its way up the charts. And even though they had contracts that said to artists, you guarantee that no other third party material has been used and all. Well, let's just say that they didn't always tell the truth. So this is really what happened. I wanna show you how a digital sample is detected in the musical microscope in a way that I live with. So. This is Jimmy Castor's song, and this is a, a diagram that's created by sound wave technology that was actually created by the FBI. It's a form of voice print technology, and it does compare sound waves to one another. And this is how you prove whether or not one recording has taken something from another. You cannot always prove it. It really depends on the way it was done and the way it was even changed. Listen, and you'll sort. This is what is meant by a spectrogram analysis, and this is what we use to prove this in this kind of a case. Leroy. So that's what Yoli Roy looks Leroy. like. Okay, and that's from Jimmy Castor's song. One more time, okay? Leroy. And now, here's the Beastie Boys. Leroy. So. You know, this is a form of, you have to be able to know how to look at these um, diagrams, sort of like maybe you'd look at an x-ray if you had that kind of training in medicine. So they have a certain look where, where there are similar visuals. So in other words, our job is to detect whether or not this happened. Um, and here's where it happened in the blue, sort of the aqua colored circle. That's where the strong lines are shown. And that's what basically is showing. That's the unique musical uh, characteristic 
of the Yoli Roy sample, and that's what we found in the Beastie Boys recording also. They really couldn't deny it, but here, we'll play it again. That's how short it is. So you could manipulate that once you've captured it in your computer, and I'm honored to say that actually a federal judge used uh, my definition of sampling in one of his opinions, but basically you can manipulate it once you've captured it. You could change it, you could disguise it, you could play it backwards. There were cases in which the sample was played backwards to not be recognizable. And those lawyers of you in the audience, you know, might be thinking of words like transformative right now and all. So there are times that it can definitely be changed a lot. But still, the source was the other recording that you didn't necessarily have the right to use. And sometimes it's very hard to detect because it's very, very sophisticated. This isn't as obvious as these sound. It became much, much more complex and nuanced. What it looks like in this, that sample. Could you go back, please? So that's, this is what it looks like on the Beastie Boys. And if you want to go back and forth for a minute, basically the strong lines are showing the frequencies that are the same. So it's a form of a kind of musical fingerprint. And there was basically not no denying it. Um, it was really the argue that it was very short, this and that. And actually sometimes artists who sample unknown or artists who, whose careers have declined, they'll say, well, we're really helping lift that artist up because he hasn't sold any records in you know 20 years or something. You know, but there is something about ownerships. So um, before we go to the last part um, of this, so I'll just move through this quickly, but sort of the points that I find uh, work, my work needed the most is to help, number one, prevent disputes. We're often hired before something's released for use in a film or advertising or in some other way, because perhaps, for example, the ad that was, has music in it was composed with what was given as directions with a what you call a temp track, meaning say a car company wants the music in his or her commercial to sound like a really hot song that's out right now uh, by Beyonce, but you know, who can afford Beyonce, to pay Beyonce for that? So they send uh, the, you know, a copy of the Beyonce song as a background to the mock-up of the commercial of the car company, you know, the car taking out, you know, on a drive or something. And they'll say, write something that's like this, but not close enough that we'll get sued. So they start with that, by the way, you know. And I had a famous case like that with McDonald's where that happened. Um, and so that, that's sort of the smoking gun. And then how far does the composer, <clears throat> pardon me, go? Does he or she stay with that and not go far enough to be safe? Or does the composer maintain and evoke the mood but change it enough, et cetera? So we're often asked to opine on whether or not the music is likely to trigger a suit. We're not lawyers, so we never give legal advice, but whether or not it is likely to tr trigger an accusation. And of course, if you've gone so far as to try to license it from Beyonce or others, and then you decide that fell apart for financial or other reasons, then you know you're really you're really out you're really vulnerable. So um, so we're often asked to distinguish uh, between what could be used and what couldn't, and we often offer suggestions on revisions, and then we'll hear a rewritten work to prevent a dispute. But when that doesn't take place, 
the role of the musicologist at the outset of the dispute. So as we say, that is really when we assess the strengths and weaknesses of a case. Not all music that sounds similar is created equally in terms of the court case. For example, is this, are the similarities protectable under the law or are they generic? Um, are, is there likely to be prior art? In other words, what's important is to understand both sides of the musical equation in the beginning so that attorneys and their clients can assess whether or not it's worth going forward because lawsuits are very expensive whether you win or lose, by the way. So say it does go forward and it becomes a trial. And I've already walked you through sort of how the, the way the musicologist is used at the trial varies by the style of the attorney. But basically the musicologist's job is to give an objective education to the jury so they can understand the music they're listening to and make a very reasonable decision and one that at least is informed. And that's really a challenge if the music's complex. So we're moving forward to the present day and predicting a little bit. Now where we're at right now, we've been getting there for a long time, but is artificial intelligence composed music. Now that started out with, with you know, many decades ago where you maybe had some elements of music that were electronic or composed by an artificial intelligence, machine learning of music, recognizing patterns and all. And sometimes it sounded very clunky and sometimes it was pretty persuasive. But today the artificial intelligence has become so sophisticated that it's actually either an aid to music that is works as a collaborator with it so that a composer might compose something but use certain aspects of the music to uh, combine with the creation of artificial intelligence created music so it's instead of a songwriter and lyricist there may be a songwriter lyricist and an artificial intelligence component to the music that you're hearing and that raises all kinds of legal issues because that is not human created or is a human created and we think about things like the monkey case and all in terms of uh in photography and all you know is something that's been created by a machine but built on the shoulders of observing pre-existing music and understanding the patterns of the music where where is that line and the copyright uh u.s copyright law protects human created creations not machine created. So, you know, you're in a real new universe here because it's much, much cheaper to um, say for your video game to have an artificial intelligence generated piece of music in your background than paying a composer who has rights and terms and many years of control over the music, et cetera, unless it's a work for hire. But still, compared to, I mean, there's no life plus 70 you know, when it's artificial intelligence created music. So it really is going to create a whole new group of challenges, but I think it's, it's really inevitable. So here, I just want to play for you some music that was completely artificial intelligence composed. It was done with the knowledge of a highly trained musician herself, Juilliard trained musician, who's also an a neuroscientist and she combined her area of physics in essence uh, with her understanding of music she's a specialist in chopin and has a degree in chopin performance from juilliard 
and she decided to pour all of her Chopin into her computer and have the computer learn how to compose Chopin. And this is her examples of um, how the computer learned in different styles. So I'll play it for you and you have varying probably reactions, but each of these is not human composed at all. Chopin. I mean, so, you know, it, to compose that, the patterns had to be recognized, the lengths of different rhythms, the, pitch, the sequence of pitches, the harmonies, the types of what you call phrases in terms of the arc of a phrase, does it go up, does it go down? There are many considerations or in music that can be um, broken down. And that's what the computer would have to do in order to compose music that sounds that close to Chopin. Um, I'd love to play it for Chopin and see what he thought, but he's not around these days. Um, anyway, here's a few other examples, and then we'll have questions. present day really and you know there are a lot of considerations about how what we're going to do about this kind of music and also I started to think you know what will my job be if someone says we think that this artificial intelligence created music came from ours and comparing them well I would use exactly the same kind of analysis techniques that I've been showing you all along because the really the root of the music is not my concern it's more the music in its final outcome the notes the pitches i mean the pitches the rhythms the harmonies the structure uh the lyrics etc and how they became that way in a studio or through a, a live breathing composer is actually not at all my concern but it certainly will be the concern of many of the attorneys in the audience going forward um, especially, as I say, when it's collaborative between a, a live composer and portions of it being artificial intelligence created or using other third-party artificial intelligence created materials. And that'll also create some access questions because remember that Chopin and all, while that would be probably considered public domain, um, it, it was composed with the so-called knowledge, the library of Chopin that was poured into, it. and there was recently a case in which, you know, the Beatles music was all poured in, in that way. And then the idea is to create a hit song, you know, a hit Beatles song uh, artificially and all, and people will always be fascinated, I think, with that art of creation. So 
I just want to thank everybody for your your very polite attention. It's been a long uh, talk, and Orly particularly. So I'll, I'll leave it up to her now. No, thank you so much. That was fantastic. And I kept thinking, I'm so glad that you're not here in the evening when I sing a lullaby to my two-year-old, because you would hear me sing out of key, out of pitch. And, uh, I, and, and, uh, and so... Oh, what's pitch anyway? It's just relevant. I just realized how, what a good ear you have. Um, thank you so much. That was fascinating. So now we have about, you know, 15 minutes or so for questions. So Ramona, then Idu, then Suna, in that order for questions, please. Um, I just wanted to say thank you so much for uh, your talk. It was so enlightening. Um, I'm a musician and, and a PhD in musicology at UCLA, also a professor of music. And um, I'm really curious if you've um, found yourself thinking about any of these issues with Spotify and their AI and also session musician sort of houses where they create lots of ambient and piano music under false artist names on Spotify. I've been hearing a lot about this and I'm wondering what your opinions are about this process of them, you know, collecting revenue for Spotify through these methods and if there has been any sort of legal ramification thus far. Well, so um, that's a great question and it really brings us up to today. There have been, you know, there are class action cases, uh, lawsuits against Spotify and I'm, uh, the music industry is reacting to that. I don't really know where, where it will play out. And because those are more sort of financial, uh, the distribution of the income uh, part of it, it's not a question of whether or not infringement has been take it, taken place in the sense of a musical analysis. So I, it would be more of a financial expert who would testify in that kind of case. So I haven't actually been asked to participate usually. Sometimes I am and sometimes the analysis I do is applied to a financial um, model in terms of the, the portions of a piece of music that are similar, for example. But in the case of Spotify and the use of it and the way in which the music's co collaboratively composed and often across different territories, and as you know, there, you know, music protection is different in every single country, even though there are some treaties. So I don't really know where, I, I think there will be lawsuits about it. Um, it's going to take some time, though. And then we have Yidu's question next. Yidu. My question is about the recent Katy Perry case. And a lot of musicians have been discussing about the ramifications of the precedent that's just setting that um, the similarity, the bar, the substantial similarity can be achieved is decreasing. And I was wondering, what do you think about the uh, the results of that case and how that will affect uh, not only the musicians but also musicologists because the musicologist for um, Katy Perry's um, team was also heavily criticized. Uh, I had a little trouble hearing you but I do know what case you're talking about so I'll do my best to respond. So yeah, what I'd say is that the Katy Perry case outcome was I think influenced by some of these earlier milestone cases to do with the idea of a collection of similar features that all of which individually might be found in the public domain. And they, you know, they used words, I believe, like building block and other words to define that. So I was not involved in that case, but um, there's a few items. Number one is there's been a very big misunderstanding about, uh, misconceptions really about the, what the Marvin Gaye case actually 
did decide and and what it didn't really address in the press by um, a very big you know in essence publicity campaign uh, in that area of the uh, losing side and the industry in certain ways so there was a big pushback and i think that's pressured the courts in a certain way so that the idea of collective similarities that individually don't have protection and that's partly what the Katy Perry case, they had a similar ostinato, as it was called, meaning a repetitive musical phrase that was similar. Um, and um, there was uh, difficulty improving access because Katy Perry, it wasn't her style of music that the plaintiff wrote, but because of her connection, I believe, with, with church-related music, that was the only sort of access I believe they could show. So there was a lot of little kind of technical problems with the case, but the musical similarities, I think overall were disagreed with by the judge, partly because I don't, I'm not sure that the musical analysis was fully understood. And that may be the responsibility of the judge or it may be the responsibility of the experts in explaining it. Um, but I, I'd say it's decided, you know, it decided on the side of those who used similar features, but did it with public domain, possibly unprotected musical elements. I have a question from Barb Hall. Uh, can you comment on the compulsory licenses with public TV? I mean, you're not, an, you're not a music attorney or musicologist. I don't know if you want to speak to that. Yeah, well, public TV does have a special kind of carve out. That's true. And it's kind of the interesting intersection that's going to take place probably is, for example, Sesame Street, which was written for that, but then acquired by HBO. So, you know, there's this sort of combination, uh, you know, of different entities, some of which had that special protection and some of which didn't. And that comes together on some of those kinds of productions going forward. Um, I, I'm not a music licensing attorney, so I don't feel qualified to predict on that, but it's definitely, it's definitely uh, right around the corner. Thank you. And now, uh, Suna, you're next. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Stairway to Heaven case, actually. Um, as a musicologist and an expert witness who plays a role in the substantial similarity analysis within these kinds of cases, I wanted to see what your opinion was about the Ninth Circuit's abrogation of the inverse ratio rule, especially given that you know streaming is such a big part of music now and technology, and you know finding a song isn't that hard as it used to be. Well, that's a great question. Thank you very much. Um, well, I'll tell you a couple things. One is that I I've been saying for quite a few years that access is basically old news, right? I mean, so. I mean, music is heard all over the world, doesn't matter how obscure the person is. I mean, they put it up on YouTube and, you know, they're in some garage and, you know, the, the some strange place, you know, and like five seconds later, some artist goes, oh, I like that. And it ends up on, on some song that goes number one. I mean, so access it used to be a big deal. You know, you go into a trial and there'd be a whole bunch of it, witnesses from places like BMI and ASCAP who, who trapes in and say, well, this song had only this much radio play in this part of Boston so that that artist could not have even heard the song or this song was in the, you know, in the LP uh, collection of this, of this artist's father or something. I mean, it was stuff like that, you know. Well, that's sort of over, all right? 
we're, I mean, music, there aren't any boundaries that I can see for music. So as far as the inverse ratio, yeah, I think, so the, I guess, now I'm not a lawyer, but from my understanding of it is that the more similar it is, the more strikingly similar as opposed to substantially. So if it's strikingly similar, there's less of a requirement to prove access, right? So I guess in this case, if you have a, a high level of access, then the similarity can also be lowered, right? It's like two sides of the scale. My feeling is that something will have to change because the law is sort of baked in that you have to prove access. But that was created when music wasn't so widely disseminated. So I feel like they've got to, uh, the lawmakers and policymakers are going to have to adjust to the reality first. You know. uh, Scott A. McDonald. Thank you very much. Um, I, I'm a, uh, I have a master's in performance. I am a concurrent master's and PhD student in library science at Western University in Ontario with a specialization in intellectual property and music copyright. So I found this uh, rather interesting. Um, uh, Welcome. <laughs> I did, I did have a number of concerns by the idea of the constellation when going into court, um, the baseline from uh, got to give it up could be argued it's a similar baseline that was used in a lot of the cool music that came out of the 50s and 60s. I mean, you listen to anything by Stan Getz, uh, Wes Montgomery, right. even Burbeck, you could, you, could, you could justify that Marvin Gaye actually stole that baseline from them. Similarly, you're thinking about, uh, talking about the cowbell. I mean, Jack Ashford, who was a member of the Funk Brothers, it'd be any number of Motown, tunes use that same cowbell or the idea of the the Fender Rhodes um, keyboard so dealing with the constellation as a musician and also the idea of a transposition when you change the key of a piece of music it completely changes the feel and the style and the whole sediments of the music so I'm just wondering you know dealing with that because I've done I've done an analysis of the Bird Lines case, and I would argue contrary to what you argued, based on those factors. That if you if you put something in a different key, similar to you know A major, if you're going to use the got to give it up, it completely changes the feel of the Robin Thicke, creates something that's not uh, blurred lines. And I'm wondering where your argument is, but also if you had to argue a case in a Rome Convention country, you know, a country that carries a performer's performance right, whereby the performer would have rights and not just the author. Where would you, what would your arguments be for dealing with, uh, say, the musicians who played on Marvin Gaye's versus the musicians who played in Robin Thicke's recording? Well, so your question has, you know, a lot of dimensions that we don't have time today, but I will just answer a couple and then you're welcome to be in touch with me by email or phone and we could talk more because it sounds like, you know, you really thought about it a lot. So thank you. Um, I'll just say a couple things to just make it clear. This was not a case about instrumentation. So for the example, both songs have cowbell, but remember that was, there was no cowbell in the lead sheet. So we were not allowed to even talk about the cowbell. But if we had, I would have I already had analyzed the cowbell and they weren't playing the same notes. So I would never have used the cowbell as part of the so-called constellation. 
just using the same instrument isn't what's at issue in copyright protection in the United States. It's the material that's being played, the pitches, the rhythms, the harmonies, not the instrument itself. So, and so it's not performance-based because the owners of the copyright, of the underlying copyright, meaning the publishers, they're interested in the, in the underlying music and that's pitches, structure, harmony, rhythm, etc. And in terms of uh, the originality of the material, I agree that some of the originality of the material in the constellation might have been traced back to before Marvin Gaye. Very true, although they never found anything as similar, by the way, and they had a very well-financed defense. But in fact, yes, there are plenty of baselines that focus on the seventh and one scale degrees. But the similarity in instrumentation was not an issue at all. It never came up in the case, and that would be really a question of arrangement similarities. We weren't talking about arrangement, we were talking about compositional similarities and nothing in the constellation differed from that. And as far as changing a key from one to another, I would never change a mode, say take something in a minor mode and, and switch it into a major to compare it to another piece. But it's acceptable musicological analysis to compare two works of music that are in the same mode, such as A major and E major, and place them in one neutral or same uh, key so that you can make sure of how many notes line up because that's what transposition is all about and it's an acceptable musical anal analysis technique. So uh, that wasn't outside the norm. That, that had, I understand to somebody as a trained musician as you are and all who plays in ensembles, the key matters a lot. But to your lay listener, and that eventually it becomes that intrinsic rather than the extrinsic test, the lay listener most uh, frankly won't have that kind of sensitivity. And the only way you can really legitimately compare them is to line them up and put them into the same key so you see what's similar and what's different. Thank you so much. I'm going to read from Edu his second question. It'll be the last question we do today. Edu uh, writes, recently a music attorney and a computer program used AI to make a library of a million different melodies and put that on the internet as public domain in hopes to allow independent songwriters and musicians to come up with the melodies without the fear of being sued. Would that have an impact on how musicologists and attorneys approach these kinds of lawsuits? Uh, he meant program or not program, excuse me. That would be really a question for an attorney, I'd say. Uh, if, it's, if it's protected and it was done without permission, I, I can't believe that it won't. That was, my, that, was my, that was my thought as well. Um, yeah. Wonderful. You've been fantastic. Look at this. We are coming in a minute ahead of schedule. Judith Fennell, thank you so much. Have a wonderful Saturday, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to A Conversation With Podcast, hosted by Southwestern Law School's Biederman Institute. This series is generously supported by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. For more information, check out the links in the show notes. You can also find information about upcoming conversations at www.swlaw.edu. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to hear new episodes. We hope to have you back again for more conversations. Bye until the next time.